Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Eric Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing the acquittal of a journalist in Iowa, the brutal assault of an Ohioan by Ross County Sheriff's deputies, and the conviction of a Marion County judge and his spouse for complicity to vehicular assault, leaving the scene of an accident and tampering with evidence. In segment two, right in time for spring break, we'll be exploring the rights that juveniles can exercise if they're accused of sexual misconduct. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and follow us on all of our social media channels. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in this news this week that Des Moines Register reporter Andrea Sahuri was acquitted of criminal charges for failing to disperse and interference with official acts. I was absolutely shocked by what happened. I mean, journalists have to put their lives on the line and in order to get the real information out to the public. And, you know, this is, you know, quite shocking. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened and what were the circumstances that led to this journalist being charged? So Ms. Sahuri and her then partner, Spencer Robnett, were on assignment covering Black Lives Matter protests in May of 2020, when police alleged that they failed to comply with the police orders to leave what was a chaotic scene. Now, Robnett interfered with uh, I'm sorry, the police alleged that Rodna interfered with the officers who arrested Ms. Sahuri by informing them that she was a journalist. And Ms. Sahuri also identified herself as a journalist, but she was pepper sprayed, brutally arrested, and hauled off to jail. Ms. Sahuri was the first working United States journalist to face a criminal trial since 2018. Even though 125 journalists were arrested or detained last year, the majority were uh, had their charges dismissed. Her victory in court is a huge win for the First Amendment and our democracy. We're talking about First Amendment rights a little bit with this, and you know how is this important for First Amendment rights? So I think the jury's verdict is really a rebuke of overreaching government authorities, uh, particularly the local police department and the Polk County District Attorney. They pursued this case incredibly aggressively despite widespread public outcry and more than 100 individual groups calling for the dismissal of the charges last year. Now, the acquittals support journalist freedom to document what are newsworthy events as they are entitled to do so under the First Amendment. This acquittal only took two hours of deliberation. That is an incredibly fast verdict. And it's a message to the lead officer in this case, as well as the prosecutors. Now, what I think is incredibly disgusting is, is two things here. One is that the prosecutors refused to dismiss this case um, at, at all. I think that that's a gross abuse of power and really a violation of the protections afforded the fourth estate journalists here in our country. But second, it's a strong message to the officer in this case. He was forced to admit that he chose to not activate his body-worn camera during the arrest. And 
chose to not recover body-worn camera footage that was probably available in the system and office, office department policy instructs him to do. That message that the refusal to turn on body-worn cameras and the refusal to uh, preserve the footage is really a message from the jury that we don't believe you. We think you're a liar and we're not going to take your excuses anymore. Now, with the ubiquity of body-worn cameras and the vast majority of Americans understanding how they work, um, I, I think jurors really sent a message to this individual officer and this, and this prosecutor's office that we're not going to tolerate it anymore. We don't think you're being truthful. You are hiding information. Wow. I mean, it is it is incredibly disappointing to hear this. And you would think at this point, with everything that's happened, that this would be illegal for them to do that. I mean, can they lose their jobs for shutting off the body camera, for ignoring footage that they should be you know, bringing into the cases? I mean, they're obviously doing something wrong when they shut the body cameras off. At the I moment, no. At the moment, um, police unions, or we've talked about police unions uh, many times on this show, Erica, and the unions will not tolerate criminal sanctions for uh, turning off the body cameras. Now, there are a variety of states, and, and even Ohio's General Assembly has explored legislation um, creating jury instructions and presumptions about uh, the, the destruction and the non-use of body-worn cameras. I think that is another layer to police reforms that really needs to be pressed because we have this technology. It's it's easy to have. You know, time and time again, I'm reviewing body-worn camera footage and it it cuts out and then it comes back on and then it cuts out and then it comes back on or they mute themselves so we can't hear the conversations that are going on and it, it's amazing how frequently that occurs when evidence favorable to the accused is being created. And I appreciate your keeping us up to date with that. I know that there's a lot of special protections for police officers in order to allow them to do their jobs. But I, I feel like, and I think you feel, and a lot of people feel like they take advantage of those protections to protect themselves when they do something wrong. So I do hope those types of rules can change in the future. I do understand that it's kind of difficult so will this particular case set a precedent for future prosecutions of pro protesters? So this case was specifically applicable to journalists. And the defense in this case was very focused on the fact that Ms. Sahuri is a journalist. Um, I think this is unlikely to affect prosecutions of citizens who are not actively behaving and, and serving in their roles as members of the press. What the important distinction here and that many people are learning the hard way is that publishing a blog or having a Twitch stream or um, you know having 150 Twitter followers does not make a person a journalist as recognized by the law. That requires membership in associations. It requires the acquisition and issuance of press credentials. And most importantly, and for the protection of all involved, the display of those press credentials when you are in these sorts of situations. You know, I mean, it's 
for decades. We have seen journalists report from literal war zones um, and they don't get attacked. They are given special protections. They, you know, they're not arrested. They're not killed in the line of, uh, of the wars. And that's because they display their press credentials appropriately. Um, your blog does not uh, grant you the privileges of being a journalist. Your Facebook page does not create uh, a, a newspaper or a news source, no matter how many people you are friends with. This is why there's presently this conversation about quote unquote citizen journalists and whether in particular the insurrectionists who attacked the Capitol on January 6th were lawfully present on the United States Capitol grounds as journalists or um, whether they were in fact insurrectionists and criminals. Do the media protections of the First Amendment apply to these individuals, or is there a different set of protections that maybe they can assert? I think this is going to be a significant part of that litigation um, and litigation around protesters and, and how they are treated by law enforcement for years to come. It's good to see that new precedents for the better are being made. Speaking of the media doing a fantastic job, did you see in the news this week that ABC6 here in Columbus, Ohio, investigated a Ross County Sheriff's deputy and triggered an internal investigation into his brutal beating of James Stewart? I mean, this I, I want to say this is the worst thing that I've heard on the show, but it's, it's, it's just as bad as a lot of the things we've talked about on this show. I mean, we've talked about so many horrible situations with how police are arresting people and people are getting hurt and getting shot. In this case, it's quite interesting and there's a new twist to this. So I can't wait to hear what your analysis is of this situation. So how did James Stewart come to the attention of law enforcement to begin with? The police and medics were called to his house after he had slipped and fallen. He couldn't be woken up. He was, he was knocked out. Now, the medics revived Mr. Stewart and found that he had been drinking for a substantial amount of time. And as he starts to come around, he becomes agitated with the medics and the police that are in his home. He ultimately refused for further medical treatment. Now, the police allowed his roommate to make a decision, a judgment call, if you will, and decide whether he would be allowed to stay in his home and sober up or whether he should be hauled off to jail. His roommate chose jail. Now, Mr. Stewart was arrested for disorderly conduct and removed from the home, which in and of itself seems to be a bit of a stretch under the law. Um, however, that is the cause of his initial arrest. Um, his his treatment at the hands of law enforcement, even in this scenario, is suspect in my opinion. How is it possible that your roommate gets to decide whether you go to jail or not? Well, I, I think that's the exact issue. You know, the, I think the Ross County Sheriff's Department needs to make their own judgment call in that scenario. Either this person is too intoxicated to care for himself um, and needs medical attention, um, or he can sleep it off. Now, if, if they were to be called back out because 
he was causing injury to his roommate um, or damaging his roommate's belongings or behaving in some other illegal manner, they've got to do that. Uh, but it seems like police in this situation, the sheriff's deputies in this situation, just decided to shortcut the process. Why jail though? I mean, he was called there for medical attention. I know he, he got a little out of hand when, when he woke up disoriented, but he was obviously in need of medical attention, not to be thrown in jail. I think you're exactly right, Erica. And, and this is why we advocate for defunding the police. The proper amount of funding for a local substance abuse agency um, or for the medics to uh, have a facility in Ross County where an individual can uh, get dried out would have vitiated this entire scenario. And now, rather than having the appropriate facility available for Mr. Stewart, Ross County is looking at a lawsuit from Mr. Mr. Stewart. So what happened when he got to jail? He was in jail for about 20 minutes. And during his booking, he was violently assaulted by Ross County Sheriff's Deputy Timothy Clayton. Deputy Clayton claimed that Stewart said, if you touch me again, I'm going to beat your ass. But the body-worn camera footage reveals that Mr. Stewart actually said, if you grab my, if you grab me again, I'm going to call an attorney and sue you. At that point, Deputy Clayton turned off his body camera and took Mr. Stewart to the ground, according to Deputy Clayton, with a minimum amount of force. But when the body cam footage resumes, we see a pool of blood spreading from Mr. Stewart's face. He's moaning and he's still handcuffed, begging for medical attention, while deputies stand around and watch him bleed onto the floor. The assault left Mr. Stewart with eight stitches in his forehead and resulted in permanent injuries to his neck, resulting in the need for metal rods to stabilize his spine. Mr. Stewart will never be the same again because Deputy Clayton lost his cool. It's devastating. I guess, like, you can't even, you can't even say things like, well, at least he didn't die. I mean, injuring yourself in that manner, that is so painful. Neck and back injuries never go away. And sometimes people wish they were dead, but the kind of pain that that causes. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And he's going to have a lot of medical issues for the rest of his life, a lot of medical bills uh, for the rest of his life as a result. So, I mean, I, I just can't believe that this got this out of hand and that nobody stopped it. He was calling for help originally. I can't even imagine that he ended up in a lot worse shape with a lifetime injury just because he got drunk and bumped his head. This is unbelievable. So how did the media play a role in the investigation of the violent assault of Mr. Stewart? The local ABC affiliate used a public records request to secure footage of the violent assault perpetrated by Timothy Clayton. Now, in this case, uh, they asked repeatedly for the county sheriff to sit down and discuss the incident, but after delaying for more than six weeks and refusing to produce the material, uh, the local ABC affiliate refused to let go of the issue and instead continued to demand the footage and request comment from the sheriff's office. Now, ultimately, the sheriff's office declined an interview with ABC6 uh, because they claim that the incident is now under investigation. The 
release of the video and the violent aftermath of Mr. Stewart's arrest has put pressure on the Ross County Sheriff's Department to do an actual investigation and has now prevented them from covering up this assault on a helpless man. Well, our thoughts and prayers go out to Mr. Stewart and his family. Absolutely. And another individual who suffered grievous bodily harm at the hands of the government was the victim of Marion County Judge Jason Warner and his spouse, Jamie's uh, vehicular assault, uh, leaving the scene of an accident and tampering with evidence. They have now been convicted of those crimes after a bench trial. Can you tell us what is complicity? I remember this coming up a lot at the beginning of the Trump term where they were talking about who was complicit with certain crimes. And I'd love to know, just to remind us of what the definition is and how it would pertain to this case with the judge and his wife. So the legal definition is uh, a, a person who acts with the kind of culpability required for the commission of an offense, as in knowingly, recklessly, or negligently soliciting or procuring another person to commit an offense, aiding or abetting a person committing an offense, conspiring with another person to commit an offense, or causing an innocent or irresponsible person to commit the offense. What does this mean more practically? Well, it's getting somebody else to do your dirty work for you or being involved in the commission of a crime to the point that the law can say, you wanted this crime to happen, you intended this crime to happen, um, or you were so reckless or negligent in your behavior that you allowed this crime to happen. Now, it's not a defense to a complicity that there's no principle, there's no primary offender charged or conviction. And there's a key distinction between whether the underlying offense was actually accomplished or merely attempted, but both can be charged as complicity. So if you attempt to commit an offense, that's still a slightly lesser degree uh, than the primary offense, uh, but it doesn't matter. You can still be responsible and, and complicit in the attempt of an offense. Now, whoever is convicted of complicity to commit an offense is prosecuted and punished in the same way as the principal offender. So whoever actually commits the offense, everybody who's complicit in that is punished the same way. In this case, uh, Judge Warner's conviction for a felony three uh, tampering with evidence or more accurately complicity to tampering with evidence will be sentenced under the same penalties as tampering with evidence. So as a felony of the third degree with exposure of nine to 36 months in prison. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's appropriate, but it's definitely, it's interesting. I'm not sure that everybody realized how being complicit to a crime worked when you're getting punished for it. So I guess everyone should be aware of that <laughs> when they know about a crime that's about to happen, uh, that they can be punished for it as well. And I know that we've come up with examples of this in the past. It's just been a little while and I don't think it's is anything so wild as this with a high-ranking official. Can you explain how a joint indictment where both defendants are charged with complicity would work? So this is a classic example. Uh, the judge, Jason Warner, and his wife, Julia, were both charged with complicity because there was a question of fact as to 
whom of the two of them was the driver of the vehicle that crashed into the other car. Now, a witness on the scene identified a male driver with a short haircut exiting the vehicle after the crash. That suggests that it was Judge Jason Warner. However, his wife, Julia, turned herself in to law enforcement and told police that she was the driver of the vehicle. Now, there was no forensic evidence that was able to sufficiently identify and definitely place one person behind the wheel and the other in the passenger seat. So the prosecutor relied on Julia's statement to charge her and prosecute her with assault, uh, vehicular assault, and complicity to leaving the scene of the accident and complicity to tampering with the evidence. She was convicted on all of those charges. Now, former Judge Jason Warner was found guilty of complicity to leaving the scene of the accident and complicity to tampering with evidence, again, because they couldn't tell who was primarily responsible for the driving in this case. And this is an appropriate result under the law. People shouldn't be able to get away with a crime, get away with you know, seriously injuring another individual, simply because we can't identify uh, who among two people uh, actually committed the offense when they were both engaged in and willing to commit the offense uh, themselves. It's just all so sleazy of them. <laughs> so, I, but, but very interesting. Thank you for explaining that. So was a bench trial a better strategy than a jury trial under these facts and why? So in, in my opinion, Erica, a bench trial is very rarely the appropriate option. And while we don't know the details of the defense strategy, I think in this case, uh, a jury trial would have likely been a better option. Um, the reason I say that is because in a jury trial, you can still ask the judge for uh, a judgment of acquittal. You can ask a judge for a judgment of acquittal at the conclusion of the prosecution's case. If the evidence is so weak that no reasonable juror would find for uh, the, the prosecution. You can ask again uh, on that same standard of proof, viewing the evidence in uh, the prosecution's best light, could no reasonable person enter uh, a conviction. And then even if the jury comes back with a guilty verdict, you can ask the judge yet again for uh, them to set aside that judgment of conviction and enter a not guilty verdict. So you've got multiple options where you can still take advantage of um, you know, the, the more level-headed, less emotional, analytical nature of a judge. Now, frequently uh, attorneys look at bench trials and they think, well, a judge won't decide this with passion or the influence of emotion, but that's not necessarily true. And it, it removes the defendant's ability to tell a compelling story um, to, to a jury. And tell a compelling story in such a way that the jury is swayed to believe the accused over the accusers. Now, a judge is under no obligation to explain why he or she made whatever decision he ultimately made. Um, and But frequently jurors, as we have seen in the past, Erica, will come forward and explain their verdicts. Now, I think one of the reasons why a bench trial was chosen in this case is because of somewhat significant pretrial publicity. Now, the better option in this situation would have been to ask for a change of venue. It doesn't seem that that uh, occurred in this case. Now, especially so when the defendant is an elected county official. 
Now, in this case, it was likely as some sort of strategic decision, although we don't know the thinking process of the defense attorney in this case. But I think an opportunity was lost to connect with jurors of the county through testimony, through eye contact, body language, and the energy expressed in the courtroom. Key, subtle connections that really make the difference in the deliberation room, but are wholly absent from a bench trial. Our thoughts are with the Marion County community as it, as it heals from this apparent betrayal of trust. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate your explaining all of that. And I mean, it just goes to show when something happens in an emergency situation, you really have to stop and think about what you're doing because this is just a catastrophe. And with that, Erica, let's move on to our featured topic this week. Nationwide, more than one in four sex offenders are actually juveniles. That means that a substantial portion of sex offenses are committed by people who are minors and cannot be identified as quote unquote pedophiles or predators. But the juvenile court system is fundamentally different than the adult criminal justice system. And the response to juvenile allegations of sexual misconduct are different as well. Erica, let's answer your questions about juveniles accused of sexual assault. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting topic because oftentimes kids, they don't have the same knowledge that we do as adults. They don't have the same control over their impulses. And sometimes they just aren't informed. So they, they're inquisitive and they want to try things out that are a lot of times inappropriate. So, I mean, it's sad to think that it could come to a situation where another child is hurt and traumatized by someone who doesn't know better. Uh, but I know that that happens a lot. And according to your, your quotes um, and your statistics, it definitely happens a lot. So can you tell us, I mean, are they actually arrested when something like this happens? So juveniles are arrested. They're taken into custody in a variety of situations. Uh, they can be taken into custody by order of a court. They can be taken into custody by a police officer um, under certain situations where they've got, you know, just like an adult where an officer has reasonable grounds to believe that a child isn't getting uh, proper care or is in immediate danger to themselves or other people. And they can also be arrested on, you know, what is essentially an arrest warrant. Um, in those situations, children are handcuffed. They are stuffed in cruisers. They are hauled off to uh, jail, a juvenile jail, but a juvenile, but a jail nonetheless, um, in a manner very similar to an adult. They get photographed, they get fingerprinted, they get forced to submit to a DNA swab. And it's important to note that not every county has a juvenile detention facility. That facility may be miles away, dozens of miles away from the child's home. Under certain circumstances, the child could be held in the county jail if the closest juvenile detention facility is substantially far away. Now, children who are taken into custody are entitled to a probable cause hearing before the end of the next day and no later than 72 hours for arrests that happen over the weekend to determine um, if that juvenile should be released or remain in custody. So they do get very quick 
judicial review of their arrest. Now, children can be released to their parents or guardians. They can be ordered into shelter care or foster care in the custody um, and, and care of the local uh, children's services or CPS, child protective services agencies, or they can be held in detention for the entirety of the proceedings against them. So that's sad to think about. Um, now, we've spoken a lot about sexual misconduct and um, adults getting arrested. Is there a process that's different for minors that are accused of sexual assault? So I think the biggest difference in this situation is that the juvenile is not entitled to a trial by jury. Juvenile proceedings are considered rehabilitative in nature rather than punitive, uh, the way criminal proceedings are. So while a juvenile who's accused of any crime, sexual assaults included, has the right to subpoena witnesses, to cross-examine and confront the people that are going to make accusations against them, and, and to remain silent throughout um, these delinquency proceedings, a lot of their other rights are truncated because of the view that this is rehabilitative rather than punitive. Uh, it's, it's rehabilitation rather than punishment. But as we've discussed in prior episodes, Erica, juveniles who are even just accused can be subject to criminal and civil protection orders based on their alleged misconduct. Um, if they are convicted, they can, they can face enhanced penalties and enhanced degrees of offenses for future crimes. And they can be incarcerated if they're convicted up until their 21st year of age or even longer in some circumstances. So it, it really blows my mind that they get these lower protections. Um, but that is the way that it is. The age of the juvenile and the age of the complaining witness are critical to deciding how these issues are addressed, as the age will determine a variety of circumstances, including the nature of the charge. I mean, it's just really hard to think about this topic. It's, it's sad to think that minors would be sex offenders. And speaking of that, will a minor who's found responsible for a sexual assault be forced to register as a sex offender? Yes, all of the sex offender registration rules, including community notification, can be applied to children. For qualifying offenses, it is a federal mandate that juvenile sex offenders register. And if they're adjudicated delinquent for a crime that's comparable to or more severe than what federal law defines as aggravated sexual abuse, they will be registered. Now, Ohio law provides certain paths for application to end sex offender registration. Um, they, Ohio law provides situations where people, juveniles who normally would be subjected to community notification can ask the court you know, to say, no, we're not going to send out those flyers to everybody in your neighborhood saying that you're uh, a sex offender. Um, and they can, they can have shorter periods of registration than an adult would if they were convicted. Um, a child sex offender can be prosecuted for like a failure to register offense, but more frequently these prosecutions are brought against the parent or guardian, as often the, the child's inability to get themselves to the registration location um, is, is contingent on the adult. Uh, that's, 
that's very interesting. And I mean, I have to say that we've spoken a lot about adults who get accused of sexual assault and they have to register. We've, we've recently spoken about this and we've talked about how it really messes up your life in 10 different ways. I can't imagine anything more important than getting an attorney in a situation like this, especially when a minor is involved. Well, absolutely. Juvenile registration is oftentimes even more of a punishment to um, the, the child and their family than adult registration. Uh, the impact on juveniles is far-reaching. It prevents them from doing things like educational camps, sports, field trips. It keeps them from getting scholarships and receiving student loans. The, the long-term, the lifelong impact of these consequences cannot be overstated. If you are a juvenile who is required to register, contacting an attorney uh, who specializes in sexual assault defense is absolutely critical because many lawyers don't understand the intricacies of sex offender registration and don't even know that you can have these registration requirements terminated early. How would they know? They're not lawyers and they've probably never been through this before. And you know, a lot of times when, even more so in this case, where when police say something needs to go one way, they just believe it. And they're so embarrassed that their child did something like this, that they're just probably trying to get the thing over with so that they don't have to talk about it anymore. When really the best thing for them to do is have somebody review the situation who's qualified and make sure that the correct strategy and outcome are there for that child. Absolutely. So we've talked about Marcy's law in the past, and I'd love to know how this affects the confidentiality toward a juvenile proceeding. Yeah, so just to quickly recap, Erica, Marcy's law is the constitutional amendment to the Ohio Constitution that guarantees certain rights to accusers. It has been applied to juvenile courts and juvenile uh, delinquency proceedings through the rules of juvenile procedure. Now, it's important to note that accusers have always been entitled to access to juvenile proceedings, and historically, they've been heard by the court on matters of disposition, which is what we call sentencing in a juvenile hearing, um, restitution, and other aspects of the case. It's important to remember that the juvenile process is about rehabilitation, and part of the rehabilitative process is seeking the acceptance of responsibility from the juvenile in a delinquency action. Just as is the case in the adult criminal justice system, Marcy's law guarantees accusers the right to be heard throughout the proceedings. And those rights are implicated at every stage in the process. Um, everything from adjudication, which is what we call like a plea or a trial type scenario in the juvenile court to disposition or um, subsequent fact, uh, subsequent stages of, of the juvenile justice process. Likewise, the ability for accusers to be represented in court 
applies to juvenile proceedings as well. So the full panoply of rights, of course, Erica, are guaranteed to accusers, while juveniles get to take a back seat uh, with less rights being protected in the juvenile justice system. Well, we really appreciate your explaining all of this to us because apparently it is way more common than any of us thought and thus really important to know about because it could happen to anybody. Well, it could. And, you know, that's the thing, Erica, is nobody expects to be accused of a crime, but anybody can be accused of a crime. And that's why people like me are here to both inform and protect from those false allegations. I appreciate you engaging in this discussion with me, Erica, and to everybody who's listening out there, thank you as well. Keep informed about your rights, about how the government is accusing children and prosecuting them for sex crimes, about police and government accountability and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights by following the law office of brianjones.com and our social media channels, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and at TLOBJ on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Next week, we'll be back with a sui generis perspective on everything that's happened this week in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as the first of our multi-part discussion of forensic testing in sexual assault cases. Erica, when I separated from my grandfather, we would part our ways and say our goodbyes. He would always say, son, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I part ways with my friends today, I add, if you do, when you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.